just I just tweeted this thing. Um, here is the news. It's either true and we can't do anything about it, in which case lead with love, or it's true and we can do something about it, in which case lead with love. Getting the theme here. <laughs> or it's not true, in which case lead with love. So don't wait <laughs> for the headline to decide what principle you're going to prioritize. Wow. And love is not this kind of wishy-washy, weak thing. You know, I'm talking about the kind Cheers. of love that, uh, you know, M. Scott Peck defines it as uh, the willingness to extend uh, myself for the purpose of the spirit of spiritual growth of another. Uh, Maya Angelou said there are no barriers in love. She doesn't mean no healthy boundaries. She means love will go anywhere, including to the most dangerous places. Mm-hmm. And Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public. So I'm not talking about wishy-washy. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Carnivera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. This is episode 93, and our very special guest is a good friend of mine, Gareth Higgins. The title is Lead with Love, Leadership with Love, Courage, and Compassion. Gareth now lives in the United States, but he was born and grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He grew up in the middle of what they call the troubles, and now he spends his life talking about stories, the power of stories, the impact of stories, and works on things like peace and justice and reconciliation. And he's going to talk today about some different ways to look at our differences. He's certainly going to talk about the power of stories, two key questions to ask about stories, and he's going to talk about some of the lessons that we can all learn from the peace initiatives in Northern Ireland. I can assure you it's going to be a rich conversation with lots of ideas on how you can show up differently starting today, whether it's your leadership in your life, your business, or in your community. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. Yeah, I don't know what my word is for today. I often, the highest level anyone's gotten is giddy. And I feel like if I said I was giddy to have Gareth Higgins with us today, it would be faint praise. Uh, <laughs> Gareth, I had the opportunity to meet Gareth uh, coming up on 11 years ago, no, 10 years ago, uh, at a men's retreat in May of 2010. And my life is better because I met Gareth Higgins. And uh, you're going to find out why shortly. Gareth uh, was born in Belfast in 1975, grew up in the midst of the Northern Ireland troubles as he describes them with a capital T. He now lives in the United States in North Carolina. He's a writer. He's a speaker. And, and I've witnessed this. He's, he speaks about the power of storytelling, but how storytelling can shape our lives and our world. Uh, he does work in the peace and reconcili- reconciliation space. Uh, he's got a PhD in sociology from Queens University in Belfast. 
his mission, as I understand it, is to bring more peace to the world. Awesome. And to minimize violence and to have people come together. And he's going to share more of the story. But he's also so eclectic. I share a love for movies with Gareth. He has started uh, these festivals. One is called Wild Goose, a new story and movings at movies and meanings festivals. Hmm. Uh, he's got a magazine he edits called The Porch Magazine. He leads retreats in North America and Ireland. You talk about a guy who's got his hands in a lot of things and touching a lot of lives. Be prepared to uh, be sold in the power of stories today. So welcome, Gareth. Oh, thank you, Jeff. You're very kind. Awesome. Good You're to have very you. Kind. Yeah, thank you, Craig, as well. So, Gareth, give us a little bit of the Gareth Higgins story. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, I was born, as you said, I was born in 1975 and uh, grew up in the north of Ireland. The, the story that a lot of us were growing up with was that our society was divided and there was uh, violence being used by various people to try to achieve political ends. Um, I was to some degree sheltered from direct experience of violence and in other ways not. Our family was uh, definitely caught up in the experience of what we've come to call the Troubles. And I, I, I kind of hold that term loosely because calling it the Troubles can sometimes be a sort of an, an Irish way of dealing with the horror of it. You know, it's kind of a, like, a, like a decompression mechanism. And so I respect the use of the term. And then sometimes I think it can be a way of, of diminishing uh, what happened. Because um, uh, what happened was 3,700 people killed uh, between 1968 and 1994, 43,000 people directly physically injured in a society mm. that had about 1.5, 1.6 million people in it at the time. And, uh, I should acknowledge some of those deaths took place outside Northern Ireland, too. Um, uh, and that, that's a lot of violence and a lot of suffering. And while there were, there were definitely parts of the society where you were in more danger or more in the thick of it, all of us, I think, were affected to some degree. So uh, peace process kind of came into being when I was 19 uh, with ceasefires in 1994. And what I was doing, what was happening to me uh, and how I look back on my childhood and, and youth was I was being formed in a society that was at war with itself. I was being mentored by people who were trying to do something about that. So I got lucky in that people intervened with me as a teenager and helped direct my life toward mm. um, really just the belief that you could do something meaningful. Mm. Uh, and because I wasn't into sports and because my mother was a, a speech and theater teacher, uh, I got turned on to cinema at a very young age uh, because cinema was more accessible than live theater. You know, it's more expensive to go to see a play than to go to see a movie. And I could go to see movies by myself or with my friends. And that kind of gave me this uh, awe, wonder, love, uh, openness to story mm. as a way of thinking uh, about the world. So um, I know you asked me not to not to belabor the introduction, but that takes me up to 19 years old 
you want me to say give you another minute on what happened since yeah, then? Yeah, well, so so you've gone through that. You've you've had challenges, you've had blessings of the people that stepped into your life. But a lot has changed for you in your life since that when you were 19. So give us this, a little bit of the rest of that story. So, I, you know, I really think one of the big themes in my life is, is mentoring. And until recently, it was about being mentored, by, typically by older people. Uh, although often I've been mentored by younger people and people my own age who just they know more about something than I do. And more recently, that's, I've started to notice myself maybe accidentally mentoring somebody and, and realizing, <laughs> oh, this feels like a mentoring role. This feels like what I felt when I was younger, you know, like one, one of the chief mentors in my life, a guy called Terry. I met him when I was, when I was 19. Um, and, um, you know, he's, he's been in my life for 27 years. And I last year turned the age that he was when we met. Wow. So he's now 71. I'm 46. And uh, we, and I, and I had this moment of noticing sitting with him. Oh, you're, you're always going to be someone I hold in the highest regard and I'm always going to learn from you. But the relationship is more like peers now, mm. you know? So having said that, a lot of people mentored me, teachers uh, in a formal sense, people in church contexts and people I never met people I read about in books or whose talks I would listen to. And the primary thing they, they taught me was you can make something meaningful of your life that isn't just about selfish ambition. So I had a sociology professor who taught me to use sociology to try to understand conflict. I had a, a colleague that I worked with when I was involved in teaching reconciliation studies who taught me uh, very clearly, don't guess what people's motivations are and claim that you're certain about them. If you're guessing, be honest <laughs> that this is a guess, you know, um, it doesn't serve to, to claim that, you know, why somebody did something unless they've told you, you know, uh, um, wow. <clears throat> and, uh, I, uh, was involved in a, in a peace building nonprofit, in, uh, in Belfast that was trying to help change the story of the way people thought about their lives. Cause we had a story that said, you're either this thing or that. Mm. Um, and I want, I had come to realize that I was actually this and that at the same time. Uh, I think most of us are some of this and some of that, and that can be a real struggle if you're in a polarized society that's trying to force people into corners but it can be a beautiful opportunity if you start to make, uh, if you start to really work with it, there's, there's two things it can do for you. One is everybody's conflicted on the inside. Everybody's conflicted about something. So I think in order to be a resolved, reconciled human being, we got to make peace with the fact that there will always be conflict. And the second thing is if I'm told that you're not like me, but I can look for the part where you are or where I am like you. Maybe that's where we can start to reduce tension, unnecessary tension, aggression, violence. We won't necessarily become best friends, but we might not be at war with yeah. each other. Wow. Well, there's, there's so many threads here. And, and the thread I'm going to choose to pull first is, this idea of divisiveness 
polarization, violence, reconciliation. You know, you, you grew up in it in Northern Ireland. You moved to the United States, I think you said 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my lifetime, I'm 60, I'll be 62 this year. And the last year has been the most violent time in my, that I remember. It may have been more violence in the United States when I was young, but don't remember it. Uh, and divisiveness, I, this country has never been more divided, polarized, yeah. and violence erupting everywhere. So I'm not, I mean, speak to that. Like what you've been on a lot of different, have a lot of different perspectives on this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you you know, there's, there's the feeling and then there's uh, the story we, we, we (laughs) make up about the feeling. Right. And then there's uh, information um, and, you know, and there's various forms of information ranging from propaganda through to wisdom and statistics in somewhere in the middle. Uh, so um, one of the one of the things that um, I think about a lot is we are we're all storytellers. We're all kind of making up our identity and what we care about based on stories we've been told and the parts of those stories that we have unconsciously or consciously chosen to agree with. And these are stories that begin in mundane ways, like where your name, why you are called the name you're called. You know, uh, somebody probably told you at some point, this is why we called you that. <laughs> and uh, why, where your family comes from, where your ancestors come from, who was on what side in historical conflicts of the past, <laughs> who were the good guys, you know, and uh, very few people grow up believing that they're the bad guys. Right. Like, right. right. Um, and um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, and then, it, and then it, it, through education, again, through religion, through culture, we get formed in what should we care about? Uh, like having a career, like what, how important is money? Like what kind of household unit? is acceptable or considered to be respectable nuclear family or or other options what the, what did your culture think about sexual orientation i i grew up as someone who was questioning my sexual orientation uh in uh in the face of a what i now understand to be a heterosexist heteronormative society in which opposite sex cisgender relationships were the only form that was acceptable and anything else was a deviation sinful mental illness or worse um thank god things have changed remarkably since then Mm. and it was better and easier for me as a teenager than it was for teenagers who'd, who'd been born before i was um but that's another part of the story you know what does your culture think about that what does your culture think about voting um, what does your culture think about uh, uh, what you should do for entertainment? Uh, the, these kinds of things. Most of us just imbibe these stories. We never really think about them. Uh, and that's two things we're not thinking about. First of all, we're not thinking about the content of the story. So we're not questioning it. But prior to that, we're not even thinking about the fact that it's a story. Mm. We're just imbibing it like it's true. Um, and the two most important questions I've ever heard 
are in relation to the story you're telling, take it piece by piece and ask yourself, is it true? Um, and if it is true, am I telling it the most helpful way? Uh, if it's not true, find a truer version. If it is true, find the most helpful way to tell it. So let me give you, can I give you an example about that? And then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll focus it on this whole question of political polarization. Um, I heard a, a, a really helpful analogy for this uh, not so long ago. Um, by one measure, uh, extreme poverty on planet Earth right now is affecting 700 million people, 700 million people living in extreme poverty. Now, that's more than twice the population of the United States. Hmm. It's an unfathomable number. I can't begin to conceive wow. of what 700 million looks like, nor can I begin to conceive of what, what would it mean to help 700 million people out of extreme poverty. It's just, I mean, that's the task of, it feels like it's the task of multiple lifetimes. Now, of course, it would only be the task of multiple lifetimes if only one of us was trying to do something <laughs> about it. Um, right. Um, uh, by the same measure, adjusted for inflation and so on and so forth, um, 200 years ago, 90% of the global population was living in extreme poverty. Uh, wow. And 700 million people is about 10% of the current global population. Now, again, this is only by one measure. There's, you know, there are other ways that can make this look like a more pessimistic or a more optimistic situation. But the point I'm trying to make is, um, if I only tell you that there's been a near 90% reduction in extreme poverty worldwide over the last 200 years, if that was the only thing I told you, that, that's on the face of it, that's a true statement. It's a factual statement. There's been about a 90% reduction in extreme poverty worldwide in 200 years. Your response to that, if you didn't know anything more about it, might be to think, great, I don't need to do anything about extreme We're poverty. Good. It's just going to keep, it's going to keep getting better, uh, which somebody has said is a little bit like if you didn't know how to do laundry and you walked into a laundry room and you saw there was all this dirty laundry waiting to be done, and then you left the room and came back a couple of hours later and the laundry had been done and had been ironed and had now been folded and stored <laughs> neatly, you wouldn't respond to that by saying, oh my goodness, this laundry must have done itself. <laughs> you, you, would, you would be curious. You would ask, I wonder how this laundry got done. And you wow. might go and see, and see if there's somebody else in your house who could tell you how that laundry got done. <laughs> Thanks, and, mom. <laughs> and yeah, and, and over time you might learn there's, this is the way you do laundry. And, and, and wow. presumably there was a moment when the makers of laundry detergent realized there's some of us have sensitive skin <laughs> and, they, and they needed to adapt the detergent. Uh, because, I mean, I'm one of these people. If I, if I don't use sensitive laundry detergent, I come out in a rash uh, with if clothes are washed. So there's, you know, there's very, one very mundane example. We have learned over time how to do laundry more efficiently. We've clearly learned something over time about how to reduce extreme poverty worldwide. It is a, it's, an, it's intellectually lazy um, and lazy in other ways to respond to the radical reduction in global extreme poverty by saying, 
I can wash my hands of this. What you need to do, if you're not currently one of the 700 million people experiencing extreme poverty, is to ask, what can I learn and how can I help? Hmm. And so I use that statistic, 700 million versus a 90% reduction. Both statistics are factual, but if you only tell one of them, you either produce the kind of despair in the face of, oh my God, how could we ever do anything about this? Or uh, an irresponsibility, which is, oh, nothing needs to be done about this. And that's a response to the question, is it true? And is it helpful or perhaps better? Is this the truest version of the story I can currently find? And is this the most helpful way I can talk about it? So to go to the question of a polarized society of the kind I grew up in, everybody blames everybody else. <laughs> and everybody has a point. And there is no point in pretending that you don't have a point. You have a point. Please don't pretend that I don't have a point. That's point number one. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second point is, um, suffering is suffering no matter who caused it. Yeah. The third point is um, democratic institutions, I believe, have more moral, ethical responsibility and more power to do the right thing than people who are not elected or acting as agents of the state. And that does not absolve people who took violence into their own hands. Uh, claiming that the state wasn't going to defend them or that the state was attacking them. Um, and yet it is still the case that uh, uh, with much power comes much responsibility. Um, that's as much as I want to say about who's to blame for the conflict in and about Northern Ireland, because I don't think the blame thing really serves. I do think we should all be taking responsibility proportionate to the power and resources we have or had and how we used them. Mm -hmm. Where we're at in the North of Ireland right now, it's something that I, I, I wanna shout from the rooftops to my US American friend as an invitation that, that, that opens possibility. We've gone from a situation where we were literally killing each other for political reasons to we now share power across the spectrum of those political passions and commitments, including among people who, at the very least, legitimized the violence in the past, if not participated in it directly. Yeah. The, two political parties that are most uh, ideologically far apart from each other uh, in the North of Ireland or close enough to that. <clears throat> One of them occupies what's called the first minister, which is like the prime minister position. And the other one occupies the deputy prime minister position. <laughs> and they, well, they actually share uh, an office. Now, I don't mean a physical room but they share the office of first and deputy first minister. The five political parties that get the most votes, and we've got a lot of political parties, uh, <laughs> um, 
the, the five parties that get the most votes currently share the cabinet seats on a prorated basis. So, you know, the, the party that gets the fifth most votes has one or two seats in the cabinet. You get more seats depending on how many votes mm-hmm. you have. Um, it's, um, it's an extraordinary thing that uh, nobody's trying to gerrymander political districts. Nobody's trying to suppress voting rights. Uh, automatic voter registration is not controversial. <laughs> um, nobody thinks there's any privacy issues uh, with, with that. Um, um, and uh, alongside these new political institutions, uh, we developed some of the most inclusive human rights legislation and equality legislation in the world. Now, with um, that, yeah. so you have the legislation. How much of that is being followed by people? So I would imagine there, there have been a lot of people that have very intense emotions about what's happened yeah. to their families and so forth. Yeah. Have they been able to get over that? Is there something that's yeah. helping them at an at a individual level beyond just the overall political space? Yeah, it's a low, thank you for the question. It's really, I, I think it's, it's one of the most important uh, questions that's only been semi-answered. So, you know, mm-hmm. peace processes, uh, at least ones that started 25 years ago and, and, and longer, we, we didn't have a lot to go on in terms of um, researching peace processes of the past. I mean, mm-hmm. th- th- these kinds of peace processes have really only been happening um, in the last few decades. So, you know, we learned something from the South African peace process because it, it had been concluded before uh, ours oh, yeah. was. And, and when I say we, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm talking about the entire culture <laughs> community. Right. I, was, I was not directly involved in the negotiations or anything like that. I was involved as a, you know, citizen activist, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and storyteller. Again, mentored and led by deeply courageous people, especially people who are a generation older who had, had more experience of, of direct conflict than I. Um, so so the, the thing that I think was, was most, um, I don't want to say poorly handled, because I think things were handled about as, as well as they could be at the time. I mean, our peace process, in terms of the official negotiations, lasted about two and a half years. Hmm. And then um, and there'd been talks behind the scenes for a lot longer than that. And, um, but when, when it came down to it, Senator George Mitchell, the, the U S American Senator who was chairing the negotiations along with Harry Holkery, the former prime minister of Finland and Cyril Ramaphosa, who is now the, the president of South Africa, um, which is, I mean, that's a really good advertisement for if you have political polarization in your society, invite outsiders in to help you <laughs> with it. Really, that's really, fantastic. really. You know, that's one of the things I think that U.S. Americans could, I'm going to put it this way, U.S. Americans deserve help from other people because at its best, the U.S. has been really helpful to people overseas. The peace process in Northern Ireland being a prime example of that. Now, there's a lot of complexity to that story, but I think this is not about Europeans or Africans telling uh, the U.S., you don't know what you're doing. Let us come in and tell you how to do it. It's more about, hey, folks, you kind of don't know what you're doing, <laughs> but you really helped us 
And could we come back and return the favor and maybe even use some of the same methods that you encouraged us to use? So the, uh, it was a two and a half year long negotiation process. And then about two weeks before Easter uh, in, in the Christian calendar in 1998, Senator Mitchell said, I'm going home in two weeks time. I'm going home on the Wednesday before Good Friday and I'm out of here. Uh, and so there will be an agreement by then or I'm leaving. <laughs> and this was, there was a kind of a, a, a tough love aspect to this, or what, what was it that, that, uh, that Muhammad Ali called rope-a-dope where, you know, <laughs> he, so sometimes you need independent chairs who will not physically, but allow themselves to be scapegoated or pummeled by the anger and the mm -hmm. energy that's coming at them just because they're trying to be independent. And then, they actually, that's a way of building credibility. And so George Mitchell was able to say, okay, you've beaten me up for two years. Now it's time to make a decision. <laughs> and, and that did actually galvanize a decision to be made. But wow. because things happened so rapidly in that two week long period, I would say that um, the needs of victims and survivors of the conflict here in and about Northern Ireland uh, were not meaningfully addressed mm. in the peace treaty. Um, it's quite, there's a, there's a parallel in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that, that happened there, where people who had committed acts of violence were given the opportunity for an amnesty in exchange for acknowledging what they had done and expressing remorse mm. for it. Um, I'm an advocate of restorative justice. I, I, I am a fan of the existence of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think there are people today who would say one or two of the flaws with it, because it was being invented as it went along, because it was a new thing. One of the things we would, that would be done if we had 2020 hindsight would be um, attend to the needs of the victims and survivors before you give amnesties to the oh, people yes. who caused the victimization. Wow, yeah. And if that means things like, in, I mean, in South Africa, it, it, it did need to mean things like land being returned to its original owners and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. My understanding, and, and there, uh, forgive me if this is inaccurate, maybe we can just use it as a, as a generalized principle that um, if you're giving amnesties before you've done land reform, or if you're giving amnesties and, the, and perhaps a victim survivor is still working three jobs because their spouse was murdered, Hmm. You know, so there's there's a thing about chronology, and I would say that in in the north of Ireland we are still dealing with the legacy of not having addressed the needs of victims and survivors comprehensively. Twenty three years ago, there have been piecemeal approaches, and a lot of amazing people who work in what we call civil society, so they're not elected representatives or, or people associated with government institutions. Um, there are still people who are who have you know physical needs people people who were injured in a bomb and they need i met a guy once who was injured in three bombs actually and he had constant back pain wow. um, many many years later and what he wanted i think this is an important story um what he wanted was um once a week a mobile physical therapy clinic like a like a, a physical therapist who drove around and had a little clinic on the back of their their truck, <laughs> like a mobile library, would visit his town and he would get 
physical therapeutic massage and he would have freedom of movement in his back for two days after that massage. Um, and the back injury came from these three bombs that he'd been in. What he wanted was for that clinic to be funded to come to his town three times a week, every other day. And then he would have freedom of movement for up to six days a week. And so the reason I use that example is a lot of people think, just like the question of 700 million people in extreme poverty, how could we ever possibly resolve this? And the answer is, if you're not working at a structural level, and thankfully lots of people are, the answer is one need at a time. That guy's not asking for the moon. He's asking for a little bit of funding to go to a mobile physical therapy clinic, and he's not the only one who needs that. That's not going to take away his suffering. It's not going to give him what he might uh, understand as justice, but it's not nothing. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Leadership Junkies podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. Well, you, you said something before we got on the air that feels like it fits here, Gareth. You were talking about what you believe is the reality that we have the solution. Oh, yeah. So can you speak to that? Because I think you were getting there, but oh, I yeah. felt like that's like the next step of the conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I remember being at a coffee house folk music night when I was a student which would have been about, I don't know, 93, 94. And a guy who was even a little bit younger than me getting up to, to play a song and saying that uh, he'd heard this amazing song and he wanted to play it for us. It was just incredible. And he was talking about it like it was brand new. You know, <laughs> it was this phenomenal thing. And, and then he went on to play The Times They Are A-Changing and um, thinking that this was new. And I think, Certainly the problems that humans have caused, so many of them, th th there's already a solution out there. You know, the time, that song already existed and it, it had been written nearly 30 years previously. Um, it was just waiting to be discovered by this guy. <laughs> um, I, I, I heard someone say recently in reference to the last few years of politics that on both of the, the main sides of the political questions at a national level, in the U.S., nobody was presenting an, alt an alternative. Um, yeah. And I just think that's not true. It's, it's simply a, 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 a non-factual statement. Uh, it might be factual to say that the loudest voices in the loudest media were not providing an alternative. But I see alternatives being proposed and lived out in my local community and all around the world every single day. The paradox, I think, is twofold. One is that wisdom, uh, which, is, which, is, uh, which is rare, but it's around and it's also gettable. Um, uh, it is obtainable. 
we're livable into. Uh, the paradox with wisdom is that wise people don't like to go on television. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they and 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 they tend to not want to run for public office. Yeah. Because uh, you know, and so like when I see a, a a person running for public office who also appears to be truly wise, I really want to pray for them and support them and mm. care for them. Because part of the reason wise people don't run for public office is they know what it's like. They know what happens to people who put themselves yeah. in the public eye. And they also know what you, what you are told you have to sacrifice in terms of your own values in mm. order to win elections. Um, and I think then the second, the second paradox is some of the best stuff that's happening in the world isn't spectacular, right? So, you know, mainstream electronic media, it's often been said, if it bleeds, it leads. And what it really means is if, if, it is, if it's explosive, it'll be the top yeah. item, whether it's an actual literal explosion or a celebrity divorce. Yeah. Um, the painstaking work of violence reduction, truth and reconciliation commissions, local currencies, one of my friends who at the start of the pandemic uh, went to deliver a handwritten note to one of his neighbors to say, I'm sorry, I've never introduced myself before, but if you need anything, this is my phone number. Wow. And, I'll, and, and if, you, if you need to shield at home, you know, when we knew very little about, about the COVID-19 um, and she was too scared to open her door mm. to him. And so he, he left this note and went home and felt kind of embarrassed for having done it. Then later that day, she came up to his house and brought him some jam that she had made and said, I'm sorry, I was just nervous. And then this spread to their entire street. And mm. then we read the story and we did it on, to every, every house on our street. We made the same offer and then said, when the pandemic's over, maybe we can be friends. Those kinds of stories are not explosive, but there are many, many, many more of those things happening today than there are terrible or embarrassing spectacles. That's so, so that's one of the things that. I mean, but the, is, go ahead. It, I'm just saying it's so good to keep that in perspective because we always hear the bad stuff. Yeah. And, and actually, to return to something you said, Jeff, at, at the start, you know, the, the, the statistics are that actually last year wasn't more violent than it was when you were a child or when I was a child. The, the overall arc of physical violence uh, in the United States has been reducing over the last 50 years. And there's, there, there were some upticks in some places last year, but the overall arc is toward reduced violence. Uh, I think there's, there's several reasons why we think it's increasing. One is this thing about, you know, media addiction to spectacle. The other is like we tend to notice what's right in front of our faces uh, more than take a long view of, of history. Um, a third is this thing in psychology called the availability heuristic, which is just a fancy way for saying we tend to predict how likely something is to happen based on how easily we can recall examples of similar things. Mm, so if mm. a volcano erupts somewhere in the world and you ask people how likely is there going to be another volcano eruption soon, people will over predict the likelihood of another volcano eruption because they can remember one happening recently. You know, after there's been, God forbid, a, a fatal airline crash, people buy insurance against airline crashes 
but they're no more likely to happen just because one happened yesterday. And then the final reason, this, and this is a good thing, this is something I think we should welcome, I actually think we're, we're just becoming more empathetic. And so we care about a wider range of bad things happening to people and a wider range of people who are, quote unquote, not like us than we've ever done before. Hmm. So in the Victorian era, we shoved children up chimneys. And now we would prosecute anybody who puts a child up a chimney. Right? Hmm. Okay? Wow. And so I, I think that's what, what's happening. Um, Peter Singer calls this the, the expanding circle of sympathy that basically more forms of pain or more forms of suffering are mattering to more people and more people are mattering to more people than ever before. Hmm. And that can't be disentangled from uh, this same thing that I don't want to make out to be a boogeyman, but the electronic media that we are currently hmm. part of by doing a podcast. Right. <laughs> Thanks for part there, of the part there, of the problem. Is, right? No, no, we're part of the solution too. That's that's the thing, and and so that's why if we have the power of a platform, even though if only one person is listening, this is why it's supremely important to be asking this question: Is the story I'm telling true? And what's the most helpful way I can tell it? Yeah, I I, I love the story piece. You know, I, you and I share the love of story and some similar perspectives of the idea of. You know, I have stories that I've made up or other stories that I've accepted as true and nearly, well, from my view, nearly everything is a story. Mm -hmm. There's so little that's actually data. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's microscopic in my view. And yet, you know, I've got to be willing to accept that. Like when you said that for question, is it true? I have to be willing to take my own perceptions out of it and get past the view. Well, I believe it's true, but that doesn't make it true. Mm -hmm. And those are very different answers. And what is the impact of me believing that it's true? How important is it for me to believe that it's true? Um, the, I, I just posted, I, I returned to Twitter yesterday after a year away from Twitter. And uh, maybe by the time this is broadcast, I'll have left Twitter again. Um, <laughs> and I'm dealing with the humility of having had two and a half thousand followers when I deleted my account a year ago, and now I have 34 followers. Uh, and so, um, but I just, I just tweeted this thing. Um, here is the news. It's either true and we can't do anything about it, in which case lead with love, or it's true and we can do something about it, in which case lead with love. Getting the theme here. <laughs> or it's not true, in which case lead with love. So don't wait <laughs> for the headline to decide what principle you're going to prioritize. Wow. And love is not this kind of wishy-washy, weak thing. You know, I'm talking about the kind of love that, uh, you know, M. Scott Peck defines it as uh, the willingness to extend uh, myself for the purpose of the spirit of spiritual growth of another. Uh, mm. Maya Angelou said there are no barriers in love. She doesn't mean no healthy boundaries. She means love will go anywhere, including to the most dangerous places. Mm -hmm. And Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public. So I'm not talking about wishy-washy. Romance is wonderful and warm feelings are, 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 are great. And the love of, you know, the passionate love of people for each other and the feelings that, you know, I love this. I love this steak that I'm eating right now. That's all welcome. But the kind of love I'm talking about 
that should be our response to the news is about courage. And it goes in hand in hand with a better life. I've, I have this book coming out uh, called How Not To Be Afraid. And the thing I learned most in writing it, I was really afraid. Now I'm slightly less afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the thing I was most afraid of was bad things that people could do to me, right? Mm. You know, the, whether, you know, whether physical or emotional, you know, that harm could come to me in some way. And I really started to hear a voice inside me saying, um, the thing you should be more afraid of is the unlived life. Mm, so true. The thing you should be more afraid of is hiding because you're afraid of what other people might do. What would they think of you? Or who might hurt you along the way? Well, so my, my answer to the news, no matter what the headline is, I want it to be, it's not going to be any different if the story is true, not true, if I can do something about it or not. What I'm called to do is to show up as a human being, which is and what it is to be a human being, is to love and be loved. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that you talk about all the solutions are there. In the, you were talking about in the context of communities. You were talking about within political systems government systems. Mm -hmm. And we had another guest who said the same thing. Uh, John Bernard, is that his name, Craig? Yes. John's a consultant in the, in the political world. Mm -hmm. He consults with state governments primarily. And he said the exact same thing, which I find fascinating that we're, that's an area that we would say we have no solution. And his comment was almost verbatim. He said, everything we need a solution for has been done. But the problem is there's so many obstacles of actually bringing in what someone else has done. <laughs> People want to do it their way right. or their little twist on it. Or what's it, you know, what's it going to cost me to do that? And, and, and our, well, well, there's too much of a cost to that, but, but what's the, but what's the win? <laughs> like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like well, how much get... money is being thrown away versus what we could actually change something with. And, um, you know, this is a, a, sto a story that uh, I, I'm, I'm really kind of tentative about even telling this story. It's not, a, it's not a story about me. It's a story about a public figure. Um, there's a guy called Brother Roger, Brother Roger, um, who founded uh, an amazing sp uh, spirituality pilgrimage site in France called Teze. T-A-I-Z-E. -E. And it's known uh, for bringing young people together across lines of, of difference to get to know each other. And they, mm -hmm. they will often have Christ, Christian, Muslim, Jewish dialogues there, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's also a, pla a place of deep spiritual renewal, meditation, reflection, uh, with the intention of helping people become more of service in the world, mm -hmm. service unto the common good. And um, I've never been to Teze, but I have sung the songs that, that were written there many times, and I find them deeply life-giving, you know. And, and I come from the Christian tradition, and I know there are many uh, uh, parallels, places like this in other religious traditions and in, and in traditions that don't consider themselves religious. This is just one that has great meaning for me. And um, Brother Roger, uh, when he was... 90, uh, he was murdered uh, during a church service. Hmm. 
in Taze by a woman who was, uh, I think, you know, I try to use this term respectfully. She was deranged. She was, you know, she had very serious psychological, um, massive psychological issues. She murdered him during the church service. And um, at his funeral, his successor said of the woman who had done this, uh, with Jesus, we say, Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she did. Now, you know, that term, everybody's, most people have heard that term, forgive them. They don't, they, they know not what they do. I mean, that's, that I think is a first principle of how we are invited to respond to the stupid and sometimes cruel actions of others. It doesn't mean have no boundaries. It doesn't mean try to, don't try to stop somebody from doing something awful. But ultimately, we don't know, we don't typically know what we're doing when we're hurting somebody else. We need to be told that. Now, sometimes we need someone to stand in front of us and say, don't do that, you know, uh, and, or restrain us in some other way. Now, the reason I bring up Brother Roger was he was, he was known for uh, uh, talking about don't worry about tomorrow. And in all the spiritual wisdom traditions, not worrying about tomorrow is one of the chief teachings. You, you know, you, you, you find uh, the golden rule of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, or don't do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do unto you. That's pretty much every spiritual tradition. And then there's also some form of don't worry about tomorrow because what, what, what's the use of worry? Sounds like um, a song. There, there's a few songs <laughs> like that. And um, there's this really beautiful phrase that Brother Roger said, which is, uh, Jesus always taught us, don't worry about tomorrow period, give yourself, period. And so what he's saying is that the answer to worry today is to serve the common good. So good. And that's also having experienced uh, many years of fairly debilitating depression and having experienced clinically diagnosed PTSD um, in, 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 in my life and uh, good support for that. Part of the answer always was go and do something for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to shame anybody who's experiencing depression, trauma, whatever. It's not about, you, you know, the old, the old thing of like, they're starving children. You should eat your, <laughs> so feel guilty about eating your dinner. I understand. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about there's something that happens psychologically, emotionally, it's to do with healing when we serve others. Mm -hmm. Now, if we do it with no boundaries, we become martyrs. If we never receive, and right. if all we ever do is take, then we're not healthy. Um, I think that part of the message of Brother Roger, and I say this with as, mu as much respect as I can muster for a man I never met, <laughs> um, my sense is he probably wouldn't want us to think that the manner of his death was the most important thing that ever happened in his life. Oh, I would hope not. And he certainly would not want us to take revenge. You know, he'd yeah. want accountability, but and he'd want her to be helped. And what's been echoing in my mind lately, as I've been thinking about how the world, to go back, Jeff, to your point about, it feels more dangerous than it used to. It feels worse than it used to. That is, there's no doubt that's true. Like, even if the statistics say it's not as dangerous, they would also say many people feel that it is way more dangerous or edgy or unpredictable, uncertain. Um, 
the Teze community is probably one of the safest places on the planet. Hmm. A beautiful place and small town in France. And the church at the Teze community is probably the safest building in the Teze community. And I think each of us probably has places that we feel that way about. Safe, physically safe, sacred places. And the fact that it was the safest place or one of the safest places on the planet did not prevent its founder from being murdered during a church service. And you can respond to that with terror. And it's, it, that's a, a natural thing that, that, you know, naturally fear would come up. And, I, and to feel like, oh my God, nowhere is safe. If Teze isn't safe, nowhere is safe. Or maybe everywhere is safe to the degree that you're able to be okay with being fully who you are wherever you are hmm. and kind of not mind that somebody might kill you for it like make that less important as a wow. concern as a, um, as a neighbor of yours once said um every man dies but not every man Truly lives. Truly lives. You know, and it, it's not a, and yeah, you, and, and you know that this is not a death wish. It's not about martyrdom. It's not about being morbid. It's more like I have so much death in my mind. It's more about the, the death in my mind than the actual physical mm. threat because I'm a very privileged person. You know, I'm extremely unlikely to be the victim of actual physical violence. I'd have to put myself in the, in the way of it. Now, um, I, I also, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community so i've had i've had my share of uh social prejudice but i'm, mm -hmm. I'm not at a, at a physical risk in the way that lots of people are so i'm just holding that loosely and i'm offering it as it's something i'm thinking about a lot today and it doesn't have to be as dramatic as thinking about that story that i just told you i still think i think it's true worrying about tomorrow doesn't serve any positive purpose the way out of being obsessed with worry is to do an act of service to somebody who needs you. I wholeheartedly agree. It's, it's, it's also a way to find the gratitude and to experience um, more balance, I think, because as we give and we also allow ourselves to receive, oh, yeah. there's, there's so much joy and release in that. Oh, yeah. And, and the simplicity of, you, you know, the experience you have when somebody gives you a gift that shows that they really know you, yeah. it doesn't have to be an expensive gift. In fact, I, you know, I knew someone, uh, I was very close to someone once who the more expensive the gift, the more she didn't trust you. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause it was like, are you trying to like, you're sort of putting your love in, in numeric terms. Like she would rather go for a walk with you. That would be the gift. Yeah. So you know what it's like when, when that happens, even if it's only happened once in your life. And if it hasn't happened to anyone who's listening, write to these guys who host this podcast and tell them the gift that you'd like to receive. And <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they will help you with that. And I'm not kidding. I'm, just, I'm speaking for you, but you, you're, you're, you're kind people. I'm, I'm sure you would respond to that. When that has happened to me, um, can you imagine you have the capacity to make somebody else feel that way? There's got to be at least one person you know who you, you know what they would really like 
to receive. If yep. it's just a someone who really likes to receive a phone call to check in on them with no agenda, or someone who really likes a particular kind of chocolate, or somebody who, you know, with, with my husband, me uh, volunteering to vacuum downstairs without oh, him needing to mention that. <laughs> it's a small, small thing, but it actually yeah. creates a huge decompression and a lovely yeah. connection. Yes. And there's no reason why, well, there, there are differences of scale when it comes to things like global peace, but it's really the same prin principle. You know, don't I, impute I, motive to other people and try to do for them what you think that um, they would most like to have done for them. I think that's why I've been, been married as long as I have, because it's that, it's that serving the other person and trying to anticipate their needs and going a little bit beyond and doing yeah. something that's just nice for them. Yeah. Just makes so much difference. Well, especially if it's mirrored again, because it can, you know, people can martyr themselves yeah. and be in abusive scenarios, but, True. um, you know, there, there are times when, you know, Brian knows that I have this particular thing about on a lazy Sunday, I want to watch a bad epic movie from the fifties, <laughs> you know, I don't, it, it actually, it, it doesn't have to be a good movie. It just has to be kind of like an epic type film because it reminds me of, of happy times in childhood. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll, I'll want to do that from time to time. It's such a sweet gift when he says, he doesn't want to do that, right? He, he really doesn't want to do that. <laughs> every now and again, he'll, he'll say, hey, you want to do that today? Yeah. And hopefully every now and again, I'll rem I remember to, to offer things like that to him. And we can, uh, through... We can do gift giving in politics. We really can. We can do gift giving in politics. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a thing that's important to say here too. Sometimes the gift is to hold a boundary. Okay. Sometimes the gift is to, is to, is to make a challenge to the person. I do think that there are folks uh, across the world, but in the societies I'm most familiar with, the United States and, and the North of Ireland, there are people who've held power and have used it against other people, even if all they've done is they've kept it for themselves. And in addition to the oppressive impact that that's had in the lives of others, it has actually oppressed the powerful because it has damaged them psychically. It has damaged them spiritually and emotionally. And they're kind of like, um, they might as well live in castles and be locked up. I mean, they have all the trappings of wealth and power, but they don't get to enjoy life. They don't get to enjoy what Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the, the chair of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we call a rainbow community. They don't get to enjoy the simple pleasure of asking, making a request and not, be, not knowing for sure that they're going to get what they want. Can you imagine the kind of hell it would be in to never have any doubt that you will get anything you ask for at the touch of a button? Wow. There, there's no pleasure associated with that. Mm. And if you know somewhere deep inside, you're actually taking something away from somebody else in order to have it. Much better to live with the uncertainty, with the edge, with the, <laughs> with the, with the emotional danger of, I don't know, what's going to happen next? And wow. let's see what happens if I give some of this power up. I've it might actually, it might, I'm dropping weight that I didn't know I was carrying.
This is getting really philosophical, guys. I have no idea. Well, let's, 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 I, I want to, as, as we get, well, we're getting their time. So let me, I want to ask this because you've talked about it a few times, Gareth. And I think you used the word in the context. And I'm big on context as well. I love that you come from that perspective. It is about love and what love is and what it isn't. And yeah. I wrote a, or did a video in the last week about bringing more love into leadership. And for me, as you know, leadership is far beyond corporate walls. And it was interesting because I listed things that I said embodied love. And they were things like respect, empathy, compassion, being present with someone. All things that fit in a romantic relationship, but they, they apply everywhere. It was interesting. One of the people I know on LinkedIn, their comments started off by saying, um, he said, I'm almost hesitant to use the word love because it feels weak. Yeah. In business is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, and then he went on to say, you know, I love what I do. And I'm thinking, we, how can we break that chain of that story sure. yeah. that love is weak? Mm. Because until we do, who, who wants to bring love if it means, well, I'm going to be weak right now and I'm going to mm-hmm. love on somebody. Mm-hmm. And in our personal lives, we would think that's, uh, that's ridiculous, but in the business world, we don't. Yeah, it's a, it's a, really, it's a really intriguing thing. I mean, w- w- one thing is we don't need to use the word. Mm. You know, there's, there's a way of just showing up and, yeah. and, and embodying it. And there's, I've, I've thought for a while that there needs to be like two two social medias, like two Facebooks. There's the private Facebook where you can vent and rant uh, to the people who know that you don't really mean it, but you just need to get it off your chest. But it could also be the place where we could use where it's like, hey, you know, the way I'm behaving in the workplace, it's actually love, but I know I can't use that word. Uh, And then the public one where we publish our highest selves, not our fake selves, but the best version of what we have to say to the world. uh, so the, yeah, there's. That, I mean, that's actually my 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 response to that. And Jeff, you and I have been involved in circles where, you know, in in men's circles where we offload and process things so that we can be better in the world. You know that you know resentments I'm feeling. We have a process that we clear those resentments and realize how much of that resentment is really about that person reminds me of me. <laughs> you know. Or that person reminds me of something that someone else did a long, long time ago, and they're not responsible for what that other person did. And so you kind of have this space where you can express it, and then the rest of your life where you can just be it. (laughs) So um, I have sympathy for your colleague saying using the word love uh, can appear weak, but then there's also an education process about what it can mean and how. you know, John Lewis, the, the, the late John Lewis, um, had an amazing thing to say about this. We've, many of us have seen, I think, even photographs of him being beaten. Uh, I don't know if I've seen those photos or I just, I've heard the story told so evocatively that I'm imagining I've seen a photo uh, in uh, nonviolent uh, civil, black civil rights uh, protests in, in, in the past. And I heard Krista Tippett interviewing him, and he said something about, you know, he was able to respond to this agent of the state who was beating him 
uh, with love. And I think Krista Tippett asked him something like, you know, how could you find that love inside you? And he said, no, no, that's, that's, that's like a category error. The love wasn't, it's not that it was inside me. It was already there, like in front of me. I just joined it. <laughs> you know, so like tell wow. that story. That's not, love is not weakness in that story. And we have some work to do to define our terms and to illustrate them and to tell them in the most compelling way. Um, and some film does this, some TV does this, some music does this, some even some games do this, and we just got work to do. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for that. That was a, a brilliant bow. And thank you for bringing, reminding me of the John Lewis. Yeah. I think I actually heard that my first time from you when you were telling a story. Mm. And, uh, and for those of you who wonder about the little things, I'll, I'll take the risk and share it. When I met Gareth on that men's weekend, we had a moment or two that neither of us knew it was a moment <laughs> until later we shared what our experience was of that moment. And with it, the details don't matter, but they were the, as micro, the smallest of things, but the impact was explosive. <laughs> So, uh, going up, showing up. And you, you know, I, I say this to you, you know, often when we meet, you know, I had a story about you based on just looking at you, <laughs> right? Um, right. I before that. I even spoke to you, that turns out to have no bearing uh, in relation to reality <laughs> whatsoever. But just because he's big, he was, he was mean. I, yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I thought, I thought he was, I thought he was kind of probably, you know, he was physically imposing. Yeah. I made up a story about what he did for a living. Ex-military. Uh, uh, and um, <laughs> that, that he, that he would be, and, 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 and I projected homophobia onto him. I, you know, I wow. just, that's what I did. And, um, as soon as we actually ever had a direct encounter, <laughs> that was a very important experience for me to yeah. have. It was wow. a very important experience for me to have. And what a gift that we get to keep bumping into each other. <laughs> yes, um, so true. You know, because I, I see, you know, you are big, you are physically strong, but it's contained with such grace and generosity. He's been called a fierce teddy bear. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what he is. And someone who would protect, someone who yeah. would protect. Oh, totally. Um, uh, you know, without cruelty. Mm. That's love as strength. Yep. Well, thank you, Gareth. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing and um, really feeling this in my heart right now. Thank you for your work and storytelling in the world. Because it's ma it matters and it's mattering, and it mattered today to me. Thank you. It comes alive yeah. for it comes alive for me when I get to talk about it. So I appreciate <laughs> this has been a gift for me too. <laughs> so uh, so we always let our guests uh, talk about something they're promoting, and I got a theory on what that might be, but I'm not going to assume. 
<laughs> well, there's this really great French comedy drama on Netflix called Call My Agent, but they don't need me to promote them. <laughs> but if you want something that that will that will make, if you like the screwball comedies of the 1930s with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, oh, yeah. Call My Agent is the is the contemporary uh, analog for that. But that's not what I what I want to promote. How not to be afraid. <laughs> is this book that's been a labor of love that's benefited from the input of so many people. And it's just an offering to help us face our fears. Mm. And we don't conquer them, but we can get bigger than them. And we can exchange being afraid of the wrong things <laughs> or being afraid of the right things in the wrong way for having a story in which fear finds its proper Books called How Not to Be Afraid and uh, published in mid April. And there's a website, hownottobeafraid.com, where you pre order it, find out some other things about it. I eagerly offering it to the world. Well, this awesome. is perfect timing. We'll share all those details and because uh, this will be coming out right about that time. Uh, and uh, what's the best way? I know you've got a website, Gareth, but what's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, GarethHiggins.net or theporchmagazine.com. Okay. And, uh, and I, I encourage people to go to theporchmagazine.com because there's a lot of voice. I edit it. There's a lot of voices there that are other than me. Uh, so you, you get more bang for your buck. <laughs> or, for, or, for, or for your free subscription. That's not self-promotion. That. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's sharing we, the love. We, we always wrap with a question. I'm going to pick yeah. one today. Uh, and the one for you is you use the words a lot, wisdom, people who have wisdom. Mm -hmm. So what's the piece of wisdom you can share with our listeners? Yeah. Um, Richard Rohr, a, a teacher of mine says that the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Um, another way of, of saying that is oppositional energy always recreates itself. So instead of just complaining or critiquing what's wrong, uh, how could we make the embodiment of something better part of the critique? Even if the something better is just to say, I don't know the answer. <laughs> because in, in our society, particularly in our political culture, it's, it's shamed or punished if somebody says, I sincerely don't know the answer. I actually think if more people were able to admit in public that they don't know and they're willing to be curious and willing to learn, uh, we'd discover that we're far less polarized than we look. <laughs> That's such a good point. Wow. wow. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you for all of this and thank you for being who you are. And uh, it's great to see you and give my best to Brian, too. Will do. Good to be with you both. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. 
You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cardivera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast, Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.